I don't work for the church, but I, I speak occasionally, and I've been working through the book of Genesis, and today we're going to be speaking uh, and looking at Genesis chapter 7. So I thought what I'd do is a quick recap of the book of Genesis so far. It's the first book in the Bible. So the way we're going to recap the story, chapters 1 to 6, is in the form of a quiz. There are eight questions. See how well you do. You ready? Stony silence. Okay, here we go. Question number one. What is the first thing God says in the Bible? Is it, one, this is the beginning? Is it two, let there be light? Or is it three, this is my word? Give you a moment to think about your answer. The answer is... Two, let there be light. So, beginning of Genesis chapter one, God creates the world, he creates plants and animals and human beings, and he says it's all good. And that's Genesis chapter one, the creation. Question on creation, on the fifth day, what does God create? Is it birds, fish, or birds and fish, as in the picture? Got your answer? The answer is three, birds and fish. How are you doing so far? On to question three. Now pay attention to the wording of this question. In chapter two, what does God do straight after making the man? My mother, who has been a Christian missionary for many years, got this one wrong because she didn't pay attention to the question. That's a good exam tip. Pay attention to the question. In chapter two, what does God do straight after making the man? Is it plant a garden? Is it sing a song? Or is it have a rest? Got your answer? Ready? The answer is plant a garden. He plants the garden of Eden. In chapter one, God creates human beings and then rests. But in chapter two, it focuses in on Adam and Eve. And after creating Adam, he plants the garden. On we go. So God creates the Garden of Eden, and in the garden, he gives man good work to do. He puts man in charge of the garden to look after it and to look after all of the animals. He also gives the man a command. He says, you can eat of all the fruit in the garden except from this one tree. So he gives him a command, and he gives him someone to love and partner with. God creates the woman. And then we get to chapter 3, the story of the fall. Who is it? that deceives the woman in Genesis chapter three. Is it, number one, the man? Is it, number two, the wolf? Or is it, number three, the serpent? Oh, dear. <laughs> Slithered in there. <laughs> well, it'd be no surprise for you to know it is number three, the serpent, but you knew that anyway, didn't you? Okay, so Adam and Eve disobey God. They're deceived by the serpent. They eat from the fruit of the tree, and they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. What stops Adam and Eve from going back into the Garden of Eden? Is it an angel with a burning sword? Is it a great iron gate? Or is it a wide, dangerous river? Got your answer? The answer is an angel with a burning sword. On we go. So, having been kicked out of the Garden, Adam and Eve have two sons. And their names are Cain and what? Is it Cain and Michael, or Michael and Cain? Is it Cain and Abel? Or is it Sugar and Cain? You got your answer? 
The answer is number two, Abel. Moving on. So in the story of Genesis, we're now, where are we? We've had the story of Cain and Abel. We're now into chapter five, and we have the descendants of Cain. Cain murders his brother Abel, and then he gets driven away, and we have the story of Cain's descendants. And Adam and Eve have another son called Seth, and he has a whole load of descendants as well. And in Seth's descendants, there are some massive ages, hunt people living hundreds of years. And if you want to hear about why that might be, you can listen to the talk I did on Genesis chapter 5. But who in Seth's descendants, someone has the largest recorded age in the whole of the Bible, living 969 years? Who is it? Is it one, Enoch? Is it two, Methuselah, or is it three, Noah? What do you reckon? The largest recorded age in the Bible is number two, Methuselah. There we go. So then in the story, as we go through chapter five into chapter six, the Bible talks about humanity just becomes worse and worse. Ever since Cain murders Abel, Humanity becomes worse and worse. It says that their thoughts of their minds were only wickedness all of the time. And God says, that's enough. I'm going to put an end to this. But there is a man called Noah, and the Bible says that he's righteous in God's sight. We looked at this. You can look this on the, uh, on the YouTube channel, the story on Genesis chapter 6. And so humanity is getting worse and worse. And God says to Noah, I want you to build a boat, an ark. And on that ark, where did God tell Noah to put the door? Did he tell him to put it on the back, on the side, or on the front? The answer is on the side. There we go. That was question eight out of eight. What was your score? Did anyone get eight out of eight? Well done. Could you imagine something? Um, if you'd like to close your eyes, if that helps you. I'd like you to imagine yourself getting home tonight. Uh, you, you arrive home to wherever it is that you're staying the night, and I want you to picture the front door of the place where you live. That's if you live in a building. If not, this is going to be difficult. Um, so imagine the front door. What does it look like? You pictured it? Um, and now I want you, do you need your keys? You're going to go in through the door. So picture yourself getting your keys out. I want you to picture yourself opening the door and going through it. What does the door look like? And you go through the door, okay? You've opened the handle and you've gone in. Good. Thank you. So like I said, I've been working my way through Genesis. And tonight we're looking at Genesis chapter 7. Um, this is actually the second part of the story of Noah. If you want the first part, it's helpful. It doesn't matter if you, haven't, if you didn't hear the previous talk on Genesis chapter 6, but um, if you'd like to look that up, it's on the church's YouTube channel. Uh, I think it's called Watering Down the Flood is the name of the video, um, which is not a very good pun. Um, but this is the second part of the story of Noah, and we're going to be looking at the whole of Genesis chapter 7. And because we're looking at Noah, my friend Noah Rapong is going to come and do the reading. This is the whole of Genesis chapter 7, so fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a wild ride. Here we go. Just move this back a bit. This is Noah, everyone. Hello. Then the Lord said to Noah, 
Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of all the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of, of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their off, offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the deep, great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Hath, Ham, Chapheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and, with, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, all of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and, great, and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were, were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Thank you, Noah. As we look at this passage this evening, I'm going to introduce you to three characters. And each of those characters has their own question. Each, so there's going to be three characters, and each of those characters is going to come with a question. The characters are these. There's a man, there's a woman, and there's a pigeon. 
But before we go into the three characters, let's pray together. Father, thank you that you're present here by your Holy Spirit. Um, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that your word has formed culture and changed lives and societies over hundreds and thousands of years. We pray now, Holy Spirit, would you come and speak through your word and change us tonight. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, straight into it. The man. Now, this man lives in the time of Noah, and he knows all about Noah. He's, Noah's the man who preaches about a God, a God who wants people to live righteously, righteously. What an old-fashioned word that is. And this man Noah's been building a massive boat nowhere near the sea. And now one day, this man's out herding his goats, and he goes past Noah's big boat-building project, and it starts to rain, and it starts to rain really heavily. And the man asks himself this question, why is it raining so hard? And rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. What happened to the man? Now, all of us know about suffering. It's a normal thing in human existence, suffering. And we all know that some of the suffering we experience, we do to ourselves. We do stupid things and we suffer as a result of it. If you're anything like me, that happens quite regularly. Some of our suffering is done to us by other people. Other people do us harm. And some of our suffering is just kind of random. It comes from living in a broken world. But here, the Bible is really clear that something different happening to the man. What did he experience in that rain as the water came up and eventually went over him? The Bible's clear that the cause of the rain was human wickedness, but the one who sent it was God. That this was judgment coming from God. And we don't often like the idea of God judging people, do we? And uh, Speaking openly with you this evening, if I'm honest with you, I didn't really want to talk about God's judgment because it's awkward. You start talking about judgment and I see it, people kind of, oh dear, here we go again. But I felt that I needed to talk about this because if you look at the story of Noah, one of the main things that the Bible's saying in the story of Noah is that there is a God who will judge evil. And I didn't want to be responsible for you. So on the day of judgment, when God comes, I believe he's going to come. I didn't want anyone here to be able to look at me and say, why didn't you tell us what was there in Genesis chapter 7? I feel it's my responsibility to be clear about this, that this is one of the main themes here in the passage. Judgment isn't a popular subject today, but then it never has been. All the way through the Bible, you look at the prophets. The prophets warn of God's judgment, and people don't like them. People kill them, people kick them out, people beat them up. And all through church history, when people have talked about God coming as a judge, they've never been popular. I wonder if you know this man. This is Benjamin Lay. He was born in 1682 in England. Now, Benjamin Lay uh, was a very unusual-looking man. He was just over four foot tall and he had a hunchback, and later in his life, he had a big white beard. So he's quite an unusual-looking man. 
And he was born in England, and he was a farmer and a glove maker. But business wasn't going well for him, so he and his wife, his wife was very short as well, they moved to Barbados. And in Barbados, they witnessed some horrific treatment, the horrific treatment of African slaves. And as they were reading the Bible, they were Quakers. Benjamin Lay was a Quaker, a Christian. And as they were reading their Bibles and listening to God, they decided we can't live our lives with slavery happening around us. We feel God's calling us to give our lives to the ending of slavery. They were some of the first abolitionists, Benjamin Lay and his wife. Um, And they dedicated their lives to the abolition of slavery. And Benjamin Lay, actually, he's a bit of an obscure figure, but he's known as one of the first people, and today we see it all the time with things like Extinction Rebellion, he was one of the first people to use big visual aids and demonstrations in trying to draw attention to a cause. So one of the things he did was he got up in a, in a so he's in a Quaker meeting, and Quakers are pacifists, so, so they don't believe in weapons and things like that, and he stood up in a Quaker meeting and drew his sword out, and he shouted out, the violence that's being done to African people in this slavery is as bad as the violence I'm going to do to this book. And he lifted up a Bible, and he thrust his sword into the Bible. And as he did it, blood spurted from the Bible into the congregation. You can imagine the scene, all these Quakers. Turns out he'd stuffed the Bible with the juice of a very dark red berry. So when he drove the sword in, it spurted out like that. But it drew attention. Safe to say, Benjamin Lay wasn't a very popular person to have round for dinner. He got kicked out of four different Quaker meetings. Because at that time, Quakers, Christian people, would have slaves of their own. And so a man saying, what you're doing is wrong in the eyes of God, became very unpopular. It's never a popular thing to say that God's going to judge you for the wrong that you're doing. So people didn't like him. He was kicked out of four different Quaker meetings. And he actually, his wife died, and he ended up living his old age in a cave by himself. He kept goats and ate fruit from trees. The story does have a happy ending, though. He campaigned all his life for the abolition of slavery. And when he was a very old man living in his cave, someone traveled out to him and said, gave him, I've got some news for you. The Quakers, as a group, have decided that any Quaker who owns or trades in slaves will be disciplined. And so he said, I can die a happy man. And he died shortly after that. So people don't like the idea of God's judgment. People don't like hearing about judgment. But what about our man? Could he have avoided the flood? We know from Scripture, if you're interested, read 1 and 2 Peter, the letters in the New Testament. They talk about the story of Noah a fair bit. And we know from Scripture that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that he spoke about God in his day. He also had a big visual aid like Benjamin Lay. He built a massive boat. The ark, the measurements of the ark are like from this back wall to Sutton News down on the high street. A huge thing, far from the sea. It's a big visual aid. It would prompt people to ask questions. Why are you building that, Noah? Have you lost your mind? And the Bible also says that God was patient. It says God's patience waited in the days of the ark. So what am I getting at here? What does all that mean for us? I think there are two questions that that man would have done well to ask before it started raining. And I think they're good questions for us today as well. And they're these. Number one, what godly voices am I ignoring today? What godly voices am I ignoring? And question number two, 
What do I need to change in my life to be obedient to God? What do I need to change in my life to be obedient to God? Let's just pause. I'm going to pause for 30 seconds just to reflect on those two questions. So, we'll move on now from the man onto our second character. And I want you to imagine up in some rafters in an enclosed dark space, and there's rain hammering on the roof. And there on the rafters, there's a pigeon. And all around the pigeon, there are the smells and the noises of hundreds of animals. I wonder if you can guess where the pigeon is. So inside the ark, there's hundreds of animals, and this pigeon is up in the rafters. And the pigeon is there on the rafters, and it cocks its head in its pigeon kind of way. And it thinks to itself in its pigeon mind, what's going on here? And it asks the question, why all the animals? And I've been really wrestling, as I've been preparing for tonight, I've been wrestling with why does Genesis... And especially this chapter gives so much time and so much writing to talking about animals. Why do so many animals get saved and only eight humans? What's that about? Here's an example. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. Actually, the whole Bible, once I started thinking about it, the whole Bible is full of animals from start to the end. If you start looking, they're everywhere. Here's one of my favorite bits about animals. I have to say this to myself quite often. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. But you, lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? That's a good alarm clock noise for you. Proverbs 6. So ants teach us wisdom. Ravens teach us about how much God values us. Animals teach us about God and about what it is to be a wise human. Animals are involved in what it means to be a human being with purpose, right from Adam all the way through to what the Bible says about God's plan for the future. If you read like books like Isaiah and Revelation, God's plan for the future involves animals. It seems that there's a richness in life, in the way that God's made animals, that we'd miss if we ignored them. And the science backs it up too. This is, um, there's a lady called Deborah Wells from the British Psychological Society, and she's put together loads of studies on the link between animals and human well-being. And there are loads of studies being done about the way animals can impact human well-being. There's been loads of them done. Like, for example, um, if you own a dog, you're eight and a half times more likely to still be alive a year after a heart attack. Um, I mean, it swings and roundabouts, because if you own a cat, you're more likely to be dead. Um, 
but actually, if you own if you own a cat, you're less likely to have a heart attack in the first place. So, um, but they've done all kinds of studies. Like, for example, um, they did in the U.S. The U.K. is a little bit behind on this, but they've done extensive studies, and I think they're still running these programs in the U.S. in prisons, where people in cells and in the prison service would be given animals to be responsible for and to look after. Some of them are training, like training guide dogs and things like that. And so these prisoners will be given an animal, and the prisoners that are given animals to look after have a, a much improved, a much improved results in things like self-worth, purpose, respect for authority. It's interesting, isn't it? And also studies on people in care, people in care homes, older people, the impact that having regular visits from an animal, like a therapy dog, can have on people's cognitive abilities, people's ability to retain information. Your blood pressure is very likely to drop if you stroke a familiar animal. Loads of studies brought. If you're interested, I can give you the link. It's a really interesting bringing together of loads of different studies. But what does that mean for us? I've just got five questions to think about. We're going to pause again and think about these five questions. Why all the animals? Here are five questions for you. Based on what the Bible says about animals, here are five questions. Number one, what about animals makes me feel gratitude? Number two, what about animals makes me feel wonder? Number three, what can I learn from observing animals? Number four, how does God want me to care for animals this week? And number five, how could animals be used to bless other people? I'm just going to pause again for 30 seconds. Maybe just take one of those and ponder on it for a moment. Maybe you're here this evening because someone else brought you or someone told you you should go to church um, and you're hearing all the sounds, the music, the speaking and maybe if you're honest, you're kind of wondering why you're here. Um, or maybe you're somebody who comes fairly regularly and there are people here, maybe even people here in this room right now that you just can't get on with. They annoy you. They're smelly. Maybe they're noisy, maybe they're badly behaved, you just can't get on with them. We've been looking at the pigeon, and if you imagine in your mind's eye, the pigeon's up in the rafters, if you zoom down underneath into the dark below in the smell and the noise, all those animals, and down there, there's a lady, a woman, and she's sorting out some hay for the sheep, and she looks busy, but inside she's feeling pretty anxious. How would you feel? You got married to Ham. It's a weird name to begin with. The son of a man called Noah. And this Noah guy is different. He's a strange man. He hears God talking with him. And he does strange things. But he's a good man. And then there was the whole thing of building a boat. And the busyness and the weirdness of that. And people laughing at us. And then all these animals came suddenly. 
And we all get inside, and it's strange, and it doesn't stop raining, and there's all these animals everywhere, and we've got to look after them. Should I be here? I'm nothing like this guy, Noah. I don't really know what's going on. And the lady asks herself this question. She asks, why am I here? What's the difference between the man outside in the rain and the lady inside the ark? When Noah was reading the chapter for us, there was a lot going on. There's the building of the ark, mainly in Genesis chapter 6, and the Bible gives no mention of how that was done, the building of the ark. And then all the animals come suddenly, loads of animals come, and they go into the ark two by two, hurrah. And there's no mention of how that was done. And then there's the question of feeding all these animals, and they're in in the ark for months, If you read the story, they're in there for a long time, and you've got to feed all these animals and stop them killing each other. And there's no mention of how that was done. But there's one thing that gets specifically mentioned that God does to help Noah. I wonder if you notice what it was. Noah did all these practically impossible jobs with no mention of how they got done. But when it comes to one simple task, and it's something you will have done today, something we all do every day at home, the simple task, the Bible specifically says who did it. Did you spot what it was? They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. I reckon people have wondered over thousands of years why that one simple task gets singled out as being done by God. The Lord shut him in. Now, this was written originally in Hebrew, and this is the original Hebrew writing. Um, And it's written in a particular way. It's not actually worded as God closed the door. The way it's worded is you read Hebrew from right to left, and shut in Yahweh, him. So you read it from right to left in the Hebrew. So it's not God closed the door. It actually, and it's, and it's interesting because it doesn't use the generic term for God, Elohim. It uses God's name, Yahweh. And it says Yahweh shut him in. It's Yahweh that shuts him in. He doesn't close the door. It's Yahweh shuts him in. And that word, that first word on the right there, is used six times in the Old Testament. Three times it's used for doors being closed. And then twice it's used for flesh closing over an incision. So when God creates the woman, he opens up Adam's side and takes a rib out, and then that word's used for him closing up the flesh. It's also used when a really overweight king gets stabbed with a sword. And the sword goes into his belly and the flesh closes over it. And then it's used this time in Genesis chapter 7. What are you going on about, Paul? Have you fully lost your mind? Why are you talking about this? Yahweh closed Noah and his family and the animals into the ark. It's Yahweh that does it. So what? Fast forward a few thousand years, and a man stands up, and he's speaking to a crowd who had been very familiar with the story of Noah. And this man stands up, and he says these words. He says, I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. The words of Jesus. In other words, it's Yahweh, the God of Israel, that closes Noah and his family into the ark and acts as the door himself. And Jesus says, I am the door. In other words, it's me. I am the God that closed in Noah and his family. Do you remember at the start I asked you to imagine your front door? What is it? Think about the door where you live. What is it that the door does? If when you close that door behind you this evening, what's that door doing? It's keeping you safe from, from strange people on the street. It's giving you protection from cold and rain. So what's the difference between the man outside in the rain and Ham's wife, the lady, inside the ark? The man could go wherever he wanted. He could do whatever he wanted. But the lady was obedient and went into the place God wanted her to be, God told her to be, with all the noise and all the smell and her mother-in-law. <laughs> and from the story of Noah all the way to us today, to us here tonight, the one difference between the people who are going to face God's judgment and the people who will be the saved is the same. It's what side of the door they're on. That's what it hinges on. Hey. It's what side of the door they're on. It's where their life is in relationship to Jesus, who is the door. And the Bible's really clear. Jesus is like a door because he loves us so much that he becomes the barrier. His own body becomes the barrier between us and the judgment that we deserve for the way we reject God and the way we treat other people. Jesus' life is the barrier between us and the judgment that we deserve. It's Jesus that acts as the door. He's a, he loves us in a strong way. He loves us so dearly that he puts his own body between us and the judgment that we deserve. And Benjamin lay when he was an old man sleeping in his cave. He probably didn't even have a door, but I imagine he knew what side of the door he was on. So you might be asking the question, so how do I enter the door? How do I get brought to Jesus? And actually, a clue is in this chapter we've looked at. The Bible says that this chapter we've looked at today, Genesis chapter 7, has in it a picture of something that's really important. This is how you come to Jesus. And actually, Mark, who's here this evening, Mark Northing, acted it out last Sunday morning. Think about this. The people who go under the water of God's judgment but are protected by the door and are lifted up into a new kind of life. What's that a picture of? It's what Mark did last Sunday morning. And there's another one next Sunday, isn't there, Donald? On, on Easter Sunday, there's a baptism. Here's my friend Lee, getting a rare hug with Donald. <laughs> this is how you come to the door, not by hugging Donald, but through baptism. It says this in Acts. Repent. In other words, repent means turn away from your old way of living and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I've got a final question for you. And this could be the most important question anyone asks you. And it's this. What side of the door are you on? I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know what your relationship to Jesus is. 
But the door is open to you today. Look for him while he can be found. And we saw in the story today, when the flood came, there were only two options. If you were inside the ark, you lived. If you were outside the ark, you died. And the same thing is going to happen when Jesus comes again. On the day of judgment, you'll either be in Jesus or you'll face God as judge. There won't be an option for being half in and half out. You can't be half in Jesus, half out. You're either behind the door that was closed or you're outside in the rain. Where are you at with Jesus tonight? And then for those of us that know Jesus, those of us that have maybe been walking with Jesus for a while, maybe for you, if you're completely honest, being among God's people is a little bit like being in the ark. Maybe it smells and it's disruptive and there are people who behave terribly. Maybe your mother-in-law's here as well, like Ham's wife. No, no offense to mother-in-laws. But the thing is, being in the ark might be smelly and might be noisy, but it's a lot better than being outside in the rain, isn't it? So how can we, my question is, how can we work together to keep each other fed and well? And how can we hold open that door? Because Jesus says that that door is open today for anyone that will come to him. How can we be inviting people in? How can we not only be loving each other here inside the ark, but also inviting people in? So to finish the summary of the three characters. The man asked the question, why is it raining so hard? God's coming and he's going to judge the world. How are we living? Number two, the pigeon asked, why all the animals? Animals are a wonderful gift from God for our good. How can we be grateful for them and use them for the blessing of other people and care for them as we were meant to? And number three, the lady asks, why am I here? Well, you're here if you're in Jesus' family. You're here because of the door. You've been saved by him. You've come through him and found salvation. If you don't know him yet, the door's open to you tonight as well. So I'll finish with this. When you get home tonight and you see your front door, you've pictured it in your mind already tonight. When you get home tonight and you put your hand on your front door, I want you to ask yourself the question, who is Jesus to me?